Good evening. Um, I am Elena Kalinowska, Director of Public Programs and Education here at the Hirschhorn Museum. It is my pleasure to welcome you tonight for our Meet the Artist talk with journalist and documentary filmmaker Alison Kleiman. We are thrilled to present her film, I Way Way, Never Sorry, and to have Alison here with us to discuss the making of her film, as well as the time she spent with I Way Way. I'd like to first mention a few upcoming events. Next Wednesday, November 14, the Hirhon will co-present the, the final DC installation of Lunch Bites, a discussion series dedicated to digital art and culture on activism and hacker culture. This presentation will take place at noon at the Goethe Institute, with whom we have enjoyed a successful partnership. Other supporters of this program include Prihelvetia and Swiss Arts Council. Next discussion will be dedicated to new media, new markets, buying, selling, and collecting digital art, and will be held this time at Art Basel Miami, December 7th. Our next Meet the Artist here at the Hirhon will feature the performance and installation artist, landscape architect and designer, Vito Aconci, who will discuss his work and his experience collaborating with Ai Weiwei. It will take place on Thursday, November 15, again at 7 o'clock. On December 5th, and that's a new date, not December 4th, as our calendar says, but December 5th, we will present another media artist, this time with Spanish art collective, Democracia, who will discuss their work in Spain and also their piece, To Be and To Last, which is on view here in the black box. Our Friday gallery talks continue tomorrow at 12.30 when associate curator Evelyn Hankins will discuss Gerhard Richter's abstract work, Sanctuary. I also would like to acknowledge several individuals. I'd like to thank especially assistant curator Mika Yoshitake, curator of our curator, uh, assistant curator on the current exhibition, Ai Weiwei. Um, further, I'd like to acknowledge curator of our film and black box series, Kelly Gordon, also manager of adult programs, Caroline Elliott, and Sarah Gordon of exhibitions for their invaluable effort behind this evening event. Thank you also to Kerry Brower, chief curator and deputy director. In addition, I'd like to acknowledge special support of James Elephantis. Tonight, we have with us also Robert Lerman, trustee, and Jim Dimitian, Hirschhorn's distinguished second director. Now, let me introduce the artist, Alison Clayman. She first went to China in fall of 2006 on a trip that was meant to last five months. She traveled around the country and began learning Mandarin. After canceling her ticket home, she moved to Beijing. In 2008, she became accredited journalist, producing radio and television feature stories for PBS Frontline, 
the New York Times op doc series, NPR's All Things Considered, and others. She also began shooting her debut documentary feature, Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry. Following the artist-activist for three years and gaining extraordinary access to his life and work. Never Sorry was awarded a special jury prize for Spirit of Defiance at the 2012 Sundance Film Festival and was an official selection of the Berlinale special category at the 2012 Berlin Film Festival. Since its premiere, Sundance at Sundance, Never Sorry has continued to win awards. The film was released theatrically in many countries around the world, opening in the summer of 2012, across the United States, the UK, Germany, Scandinavia, and many more countries to follow. Alison has made many media appearances to speak about Ai Weiwei and her work, including on CNN International and the Colbert Report. <laughs> she is a Sundance Documentary Fellow and was included in Filmmaker Magazine's 2011 list of 25 new faces of independent film. She's currently nominated for 2013 Cinema Eye Honor for Outstanding Achievement in a Debut Feature Film as well as in Production. We are indeed honored to have Alison with us tonight. She will now say a few words and after the screening will discuss her work with us. Please give a warm welcome to Alison Clayman. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Um, I just want to echo all of the thank yous uh, that were just said and add Milena to that list. Um, but to Milena, to Mika, to Caroline, and everyone who helped to bring me here, it's a really special place to be screening the film. As you've heard, it's it's been around and I've been around this year. Um, but DC has always had a really special place for this film. And a big reason for that is um, the fact that the According to What show is here. Here. And so if you're seeing this um, because you've already seen the show or if you're seeing the film for the second time, or great, you know, and if, if not, definitely I think you'll be inspired to walk around the exhibit later. Um, I just really, really want to encourage you to stay for the Q&A afterwards so we can have more of a conversation. And without further ado, please enjoy Never Sorry. Thank you so much. Um, I am so honored to um, be able to have this Q&A with Allison. We're actually just, I think, um, going to have about 15 minutes. So I'm just going to start off. Um, and I just feel like, you know, this film brings up um, so many issues. And, and also, it's very special for this exhibition because it brings to life a lot of the works, um, which normally I think people just notice on a visual, formal level, but in just the 
background and all of the um, struggles that Aoi has gone through, especially surrounding the Swachon earthquake. Um, but I wanted to begin with asking you about your first encounter um, with the documentary photographs in, in particular um, when you um, were asked to shoot um, it, the New York photographs and what your kind of impressions were. Um, what was it about Ai Weiwei in that kind of, um, you know, it was during the 80s, kind of this outsider's perspective on seeing, um, documenting in time in, in the 80s that was very fraught with the AIDS crisis and, you know, a lot of the um, Tompkins Square Park riots and a lot of things that he was experiencing. I felt like there was maybe, you know, you were coming at it in, in a kind of a opposite way, but um, just wanted to know what your initial impressions were. Sure. I mean, it's basically like the story of how did I come to do this project, right? Like how, you know, why me? Why, how did I meet Ai Weiwei and why did all this happen? And I think the intro in the beginning gave you a little taste that I went to China after I graduated from college. I wanted to do, my dream was to do documentary film. And by 2008, when I met Ai Weiwei, um, I was in a pretty good position. I was already speaking Mandarin. I was beginning to work as a journalist there. Um, but the way that I really came to know Ai Weiwei first was through the photographs from the decade that he lived in New York in the 1980s, which there's about 90, you told me today, 98 of them are in the show here. Um, he took about 10,000 photographs when he lived in New York from 83 to 93. And you also get a, a sense of them the, here in the film. And my roommate in Beijing was curating uh, this exhibition for a local gallery there. And she asked if I would be interested in making a video to accompany the show. Just she thought it was a really interesting story. Um, and, and I already thought it was an interesting story because, to be honest, you know, the photos were sitting in binders around my you know, house for a couple months in 2008. And so these photos that the world hadn't really seen yet were my first window into Ai Weiwei. Um, I think it was also really, really fitting because, um, you know, I am an outsider to, to this story and to China. And this was talking to him about his period of living in New York kind of as an outsider, but also in a way as this kind of funny insider too. I mean, so many of the interviews I did with his um, friends and peers from that time and his brother as well saying, you know, Weiwei knew the best clubs, the best restaurants. He knew how to get in this place and that place. He knew where to go. Like he was the consummate New Yorker. Um, but I think that it was a really, I felt like when I met Ai Weiwei, one, it was a really special, it felt like a special moment because um, the kind of space that we were both in, I think it created room for a natural affinity. Him thinking about his kind of youth spent in New York and he was talking with me and, and my roommate Stephanie Tung, who were two Americans living in Beijing and um, and clearly there was so much swirling around, you know, and that's where I think this film kind of comes from because, yes, we were talking about New York, but also the conversations couldn't help but t turn to his blog, couldn't help but turn to this early earthquake campaign that he was just starting. Um, so within, you know, our first few weeks together, I shot about 20 hours, and there was so much stuff that didn't fit into that video about his photographs from New York that I was just convinced, you know, i got to figure out what's going to happen with this, and, and I want to and I want to know more, and I want to be able to do something that can both allow me to explore who he is more, but also to introduce him to a bigger audience 
but as a person, like as the individual, because I felt like my one of the strong first impressions was just how kind of charismatic and mysterious you know mm-hmm. he was, and I felt like you could watch him for ninety minutes. There should be a feature film about him. Yeah, well, I think that the that kind of balance that you make between the personal and the political in this film is so you know, poignantly and also just the resilience that he has and also the fragility. I mean, it's, it's, um, quite astonishing, um, you know, the, how you kind of track that, that balance. But also, um, I also felt that the film parallels the rise of social media and, um, you know, some may argue it's kind of like the history of Twitter and, um, you know, as a digital platform and the Blackberry has become like his protagonist. Um, but, you know, in the film, you just weave through Iwo's use of social media in a very kind of adept way and his challenges against the state. And I just wanted to ask you about how that how that experience was in terms of editing the film and, you know, incorporating um, that process. Sure. I mean, so I, I guess it was... I knew uh, that Twitter, that Iwo's online presence had to be like a, a, a character in the film, basically. It, it became clear over time and and his favorite topic, I would say, over these few years was always the power of the internet. I felt like, you know, maybe if he got prickly about answering some question, if you if you just turned it to the power of the internet, he was ready to talk about that. Um, and I kind of greeted it, I think, with a little bit of like, yeah, 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 because you know, it's easy to take take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Also, this you know, most of this film was shot pre Arab Spring, you know, pre. Um, uh, so many things I feel like in, in our world, whether it's Occupy, whether it's, you know, the the elections, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the big news is how Obama's tweet was like the most tweeted, <laughs> most retweeted tweet of all time. I mean, like, that wasn't even, that wouldn't have been the story of 2008 necessarily. That was like kind of a thing this year. Um, I just feel like so many things that happened um, also amplified the importance of social media that by the time I came around to editing the film, I think I had kind of come around to what he was talking about. And I think we can all really appreciate why this story and why really who Ai Weiwei is today. He wouldn't be the same. There's Ai Weiwei pre and post internet, you know, and what he's done with it um, is really kind of a model for, um, you know, it's in that way, it's not unique because there are so many other stories where we're seeing how social media is kind of infusing it with more power, um, mm-hmm. again, like the Arab Spring. Um, and, and I do think, you know, there aren't that many other documentaries, and there is just going to be more, but where you're seeing hashtags and, like, Twitter feeds in it. Um, but I just I just felt like it was totally natural. It just, you had to do it. It's the same thing as, like, there had to be cats in the movie. There had to be food in the movie. And, you know, all the trend, all the, like, topics, there's some blog photos on screens here at the museum, and they're kind of organized by topic. And there's, like, animals, food, journalists. And it's the same thing. I was like, well, we got to see that he gets interviewed all the time. We got to see, you know, that he has a good sense of humor. And that's that's a big part of his appeal also online, I think. And why you know he is very focused with communication. He's very focused with reaching out to young people, and also with 
interaction. I think that's the main thing. His online, that's why I wanted to put in the project where people read the names. Um, because, you know, and the, the, the earthquake investigation, I mean, all of it, it's very participatory. Um, it's not just about him promoting himself online. I think his online practice is, um, is really something else. And, and I think that's why it's exciting. There's like little pieces of that in this show too, yeah. so you can see it. Right. I, I just love, um, I think just the contextualization between, you know, some of the, I know you weren't able to include the, um, um, some of the works like the rebar, um, that we have in our galleries. Um, but that work actually, he was already beginning to think about as you were kind of ending. I know now I can finally by. say it, the work that's, that's here, um, it's called straight, right? And it's the rebar from some of the, um, schools from the Sichuan earthquake that actually the government, I just learned this today. I didn't quite realize the government resold, you know, the scraps of the sort of the, the, the leftover parts of the buildings that had collapsed. And so they, they put it, it was on sale. So Weiwei bought the, the, that rebar, tons, yeah, 200 tons, 200 tons from the government. And then what he did was he set these workers to just sit there and they manually straightened out all of the, all of these bars, you know? And, um, and I knew the last time I saw Weiwei, which was after he was released, um, like a couple months after he was released, I went to shoot a few pickup shots, but also to show him the rough cut mm-hmm. and they were working on that. And I, I was like, I wish you had made this work like two years earlier because it's great. It's just so great because it's full sensory because it has sound too. And he was really smart. He had people recording these sounds. It was really like different tones depending on the, you know, who was hitting what, where, um, and there was this motion and it fits the whole story. Um, so he was like, you know, you can't put it in because the work's not going to be out until after the film premieres at Sundance. But I was still in that mode where I had to be shooting everything. <laughs> so he let me shoot it. Um, so I, I was saying to Mika, the, the shot at the end of the destruction of the Shanghai studio, um, I sort of lingered on this one shot with all the rebar kind of together. And that was my personal nod to like, I know this work is coming, but I can't say anything about it yet. Um, so it's really, it was really exciting to see it here today. Okay. Well, I don't want to take up too much of this time. So I'm going to, um, hand it over to the audience. Um, if you have any questions for Allison, please raise your hand. You were in China for a pretty long time. Obviously, and I was just wondering how long it took you to put this together because it's really fantastic and it spans years as far as I can tell. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so I started filming, you know, the day I met Ai Weiwei was the day I started filming for this um, and it was the end of 2008 and I would say I was editing and perfecting this movie right up to the end of 2011. I mean, this was basically a work of a, a very full three years. Um, I shot for two years um, in two, the end of 2010 around the time of the Tate show I felt like like a, you know, a switch flipped and I was like oh my god I have so much material I can definitely make this movie now and I decided you know, I'd film at the Tate and then, then I'd kind of wrap it up um, and I was editing the film in New York 
But as you can see, and I knew Iowa's story was going to continue on and continue on, but I just I had a lot to say already. Um, but when they announced the demolition of the Shanghai studio, I felt like that was a really important story. And of course, his response with the river crab party, I felt like that was really important. So I went back and shot some more. Um, and then while I was editing in New York, um, of course, he was detained in April of 2011. Um, so that sort of, in some ways, prolonged the edit, but also, I mean, it was also just the story was like undeniable. This was like, it was like dealing with something in real time. Um, and uh, fortunately, he was released, and I feel like that was the best kind of gift to the film in terms of then not feeling like we were editing under pressure and we kind of like took a breath and then returned and finished it and we premiered at Sundance in January of this year. Um, and then this whole year I've, I was, up until now has been solid traveling with the film too. So also to anybody who, you know, is is an aspiring filmmaker in the audience, it's like the life of the film is longer than you expect, certainly with documentary, anyway, it's longer than you expect and then it's even longer when it's time to bring it out into the world and we're really fortunate that there's this has really been a very international film um, and we've got you know theatrical releases in Hungary and Taiwan it's opening up in France soon we were here in the US I mean it's it's um, it's it's really great so uh, I've been kind of traveling with it since then so it's been many years. Did the Chinese authorities ever try to block you from shooting uh, the work? Because you become the eye on Ai Weiwei for all this time. And it's, you know, I'm, as I was seeing the movie, I was wondering, did they ever block, try to silence her? Sure. So the, the, there, there are... Um the scenes in Chengdu where I was with him, um, when he's returning to essentially go to the police stations and the courthouses to demand an, an appeal, an investigation, you know, into into his case, those trips were ones where I definitely ran into trouble. And it's not in the film, but yes, I was, you know, my sh my shooting was interfered with. Whether the camera was taken, whether I was, you know, just pulled aside, whether tapes, you know, all the, all this kind of stuff did happen. But aside from those trips where, again, I mean, we were going in a big group with a lot of cameras to write to the police stations. I mean, that, that was like the purpose of those trips. Aside from them, um, I really didn't run into that much interference. And I think, uh, you know, a couple of reasons. Yes, I was this constant sort of observer of I and the, his own observers, too, though, right? I mean, he always had his own cameras around. But there were constantly journalists and uh, curators and all kinds of people coming in going. Um, I was not advertising this project. It wasn't necessarily, I didn't have a website or a Facebook page until, you know, at, well after I was, I had come back to the U.S. Um, and I was working as an accredited journalist, too, so I feel like while on the one hand that can invite a different kind of scrutiny, on the other hand I also felt like I was completely you know, within my rights to be you know, interviewing someone who was accepting my interview. And if you think about a lot of his daily life is hanging out in his studio or going to his other studio. We weren't marching around at Tiananmen or something like that. I mean, it was really just in his house. Um, and even, you know, one thing I really like to say, I mean, he hasn't, for, for the obvious reasons, he's never been able to appear, you know, with the film. He is still not able to leave China. They're still holding his passport, even though his year of kind of probation or whatever ended in June. Um, and so the way he gets to hear about 
how the film is received is by Twitter. And there really are people tweeting all over the world every day from seeing the film. Whatever your response is, you know, good, bad, in between, whatever, you know, mundane, profound. Um, but I think he'd really love to hear that people saw it today at the Hirshhorn. So, you know, he is there in Beijing and he is on Twitter. So if you want to share your response tonight, whether it's your first tweet or, or not, you know, he's out there at AIWW. Um, so I think that would be really great if you guys want to share your response. He would definitely love to love to hear it. Are you a persona non grata now that in, in China now that you have made this film? Um, so so far, um, you know, I don't have the answer to that question. Um, I last went to Beijing a couple months after he was released. It was, but it was before this film was released. At the same time, I had already done a lot of interviews, you know, related to his detention. It was very clear that I was working on a movie in progress, um, and I was able to go on a pre-existing visa, and I didn't run into any troubles. Um, so I, I obviously would like to go back and continue doing work, but I haven't yet applied for my next visa. So we'll see. You know the one thing, there really has not been that much of an official government response to the film. Um, Certainly compared to, you know, there have been films in the past that have caused, you know, really big stirs at traveling around at festivals, getting, having China pull any Chinese films from the festival, things like that. That has not surrounded the the release of this film, which again has been quite wide. Um, there was one instance at a festival in UK, at Sheffield Dock Fest, where a Chinese delegation pulled out um, right before, which was over this film and another film called High Tech Low Life, which is a great movie about um, two Chinese sort of citizen journalist bloggers, one of whom appears very quickly in this film. Um, so you know, it wasn't even a, a it wasn't even a storm about specifically this film. Um, so you know, I don't hold the answer to ultimately why that is or what's going to happen in the future, but I'm just going to remain hopeful that that I'll be able to go back. Great. Did, did you notice like a personality or an emotional difference in Ai Weiwei after he was released from being detained? Um, I would say that the, la- the time I spent with him in person after he was released, um, and since we've been in contact in other ways, but the time we spent in person was about two or three months after he was released. So that's still pretty fresh. I mean, he was like, I don't think he was even back on Twitter yet, although he'd made this kind of brief appearance on Google+, Plus, which was really interesting. Um, but, uh, what's that? I don't even know if that still exists. Yeah, he was like, ah, oh, it's not really picking up so much, I think, that one. Um, but, but it was super clear that... Um, I mean, I would say yes. I would say that he was clearly really preoccupied with processing and remembering the and and being like, what am I supposed to do in response to the detention? I mean, I felt like any t- any moment if it got quiet, he would pick up by saying, you know, 
you know, this one guy when he who would question me, he would say like, every time it would come back, he'd bring up another story about that time, which to me meant that that was what was on his mind, you know, and in the quiet moments. Um, but and, and what he said was, you know, clearly the like the game has changed. Like we have to find a new way to like to, to do it. But to me, the resolve of you know, or rather the the commitment to thinking what's important. You know, I didn't feel like his values had changed, but I think that um, the the sort of optimism that his personal case was going to come out in a in a in, in whatever way. I feel like maybe he wasn't so optimistic about that, um, and I, his. And his biggest concern, of course, was, I mean, his son. I mean, he, you know, he would never say, I feel like he doesn't like to get too sentimental, or he's said that to me before when I've tried to kind of push in that direction, but he was just like, look, when they threaten you and when they say, you know, we'll keep you for, you know, the next 10 years and you won't see your son grow up, he was like, I mean, that's everything. Forget about it. So I think there's there are these concerns that kind of loom over him, but the question of, you know, whether freedom of expression, rule of law, transparency, whether, you know, art and social media are ways to kind of get this message out and engage people. I haven't seen like a dip in that. And I mean, I'm sure everyone in here has heard of his Gangnam style video, right? His like Tony Ma style. I mean, he's still kind of doing these things. And like his song at the very end in the credits, I mean, he did that in December of 2011. So it was like as it was like the last thing we put in the film as we were finishing for Sundance. And, and there was a little bit of a debate like should we put this in but I my editor and I we were on the team of like no this has to be in there because I think it also shows it's all true you know what he looked like the day he was released that's true I mean that's for no matter what happens in the future the day he was released that that was what Ai Weiwei looks like after 81 days in detention you know that's what happened to him you can see you can physically see that he's like very affected um, but to end only on that note I think would be misleading because that's not the, the that's not the end you know that's not the the final say and I think that some of these lighthearted things he's doing you know different maybe differing degrees of sort of being subversive but also it's just showing that he's still got like that spirit you know and as long as he's he's still doing that I think it's really there's like there's hope and he's still doing those kinds of things all the time. Was there any evidence that he was tortured while he was in detention? Um, I mean, no. I mean, in terms of physically tortured, he was actually, he was fed regularly. He was visited by a doctor uh, regularly. I think, if anything, in terms of the physical sense, it was quite the opposite. They were clearly indicating they did not want him to come out and look like anything had happened to him. And in truth, he has not said that anything like that has happened to him. Um he did lose lose weight, but that could just be a change in his diet. Plus, he said he was pacing a lot. Um, but I, it wasn't it wasn't that they. I mean, because they gave him nothing to do really except be interrogated a lot of times a day. Um, but it, it was much more of a sort of psychological torture. You know, those two guards standing over him. They would change out every three hours, like all the time, sleeping, eating, going to the bathroom, you know, for 81 days and uh, to have that. And there's a lot of things. They kept the lights on, you know, stuff like that. Um, so there's a couple, there are good articles that came out this year. There's a really good New York Times piece by Ed Wong that came out, I think, in May of this year um, and a Time Magazine piece too. So you can read a lot of the details in there are very 
very similar to stories that I had heard from him too. Unfortunately, I think we're out of time. So thank you so much, Allison. Thank um, you, Mika. Thank you to the Hirshhorn. Thank you so much.